Figures like Cuvier, Lavoisier, and Laplace seemed to dominate the field. I found that there were two historic British voyages of exploration that framed almost exactly this time span. Captain James Cook's first circumnavigation through the Pacific, starting out in 1768, and young Charles Darwin's voyage to the Galapagos, starting in 1831. These became my points of departure and arrival, and set the experimental ambitions of the whole book. One of the first things I learned was that at this time there was no such word as scientist. It was only coined in 1833 at a historic meeting of the newly founded British Association for the Advancement of Science, held that year in Cambridge. Nevertheless, I came up with a main cast list of over sixty scientists and writers. Among the former were Joseph Banks, explorer, botanist, and anthropologist, William and Caroline Herschel, astronomers, Jean-Pierre Blanchard and Letitia Sage, balloonists, Mungo Park, African explorer, Humphrey Davy, chemist, William Lawrence, surgeon, and several young pre-Victorian scientists, Michael Faraday, Mary Somerville, and Charles Lyell, for example. Among the poets and writers were Erasmus Darwin, Coleridge, Wordsworth, Keats, Shelley, Mary Shelley, Anna Barbold, and Lord Byron. The women had an important role in the story. I felt that conventional science historians had rather ignored them, but they help us to look at the development of science in a different and often surprising way. For example, Anna Barbold was Dr. Joseph Priestley's assistant during his great experiments on the nature of air in Birmingham in the 1770s. He was testing the effect of lack of oxygen on laboratory animals like birds and mice. One evening, when she was clearing up the laboratory for the next day's work, Anna left a long poem on a piece of paper stuck between the animals' cages, which she entitled, The Mouse's Petition to Dr. Priestley, Found in the Cage Where He Had Been Confined All Night, 1773. It is written from the point of view of the mouse, and here is an extract. For here, forlorn and sad, I sit within the wiry grate, and tremble at the approaching morn which brings impending fate. The cheerful light, the vital air, are blessings widely given. Let nature's commoners enjoy the common gifts of heaven. The well-taught philosophic mind to all compassion gives casts round the world an equal eye, and feels for all that lives. Barbold describes the laboratory animal as a free-born mouse, so this becomes arguably the first ever animal rights poem. One could compare it with the subsequent opening of Blake's Auguries of Innocence. A robin red-breast in a cage puts all heaven in a rage. Taking my cue from Coleridge, the book began to explore the hope and wonder of science, but also its fearfulness and menace, a double-edged sword that we are all more than conscious of today. The constant ambiguity was finally expressed in my polarized subtitle, 
How the Romantic Generation Discovered the Beauty and Terror of Science These two terms, beauty and terror, are also central to the underlying Romantic theory of the sublime, as developed in the famous 1757 essay by Edmund Burke. A philosophical inquiry into the origin of our ideas of the sublime and beautiful. I was arguing that not only literature but also science could be sublime in this technical philosophical sense, and would lead to a new perception of the sublime in nature. 2. Above all, it was the story of Newton's apple that haunted the Romantics with the notion of science as poetic revelation. Perhaps the earliest accounts of this symbolic and possibly legendary Newtonian thought experiment appears in the memoir by the young William Stukeley, F.R.S., when he took tea with...